Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. My name is Chris, and I'm going to be your host today. If this is your first time listening, I would love to chat with you. So send me an email at hello at capitalcitychristian.org. We spent the last several weeks in this series called Life, A Hero's Story, which is about how our lives, our story, is the story of a hero. We've talked about how the hero in this story is Jesus, and we're the ones needing rescued. So we've been rescued, but now what? What does the rescued life look like? Most people think of the Christian life, the rescued life, is about what we can't do, rules we can't break, do's and don'ts. But it's not about that. Jesus points us to a different way to do life with God, encompassed by two commands, love God and love others. Let's get right into today's message with our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. Some of the stuff we're going to do this morning, in some respects, is some of the most important things that I've touched on all year, and uh, may not sound that way, but just asking that you'll listen closely, and I hope God will nudge. Let's pray together. Father, for your gift of grace, we give you thanks for the just invitation to be in your presence. And now I pray, Lord, that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts will please you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, guys, so here's where we've been. God looks down from heaven, and he sees that we are in a boatload of trouble. We've got to made a mess of things. You see, God created us to do life with him, and we keep on pushing him away. He told us how to do life his way, the way it's supposed to work, the way that it works best, and we keep blowing it off. And bottom line, whenever we blow God off because we think that we're smarter than he is, we go down this path of self-destruction. So God saw the mess that we were making, mess we didn't see. He saw where it was taking us, something we didn't see. And instead of getting frustrated and annoyed and just snuffing us out, He sends his son into our world to open up our eyes and do way more than that. On that cross, Jesus showed us vividly how bad our sin is. He showed us vividly how much God loves us anyway. And he showed us vividly the way out. That was the rescue. But listen, just because Jesus died on the cross, taking all of your sins with him, doesn't mean you're saved yet. He died for all of us. He died for every man, every woman, every child, everywhere, every time. But just because he died for all of us doesn't mean that everyone everywhere is automatically saved. We have to receive what he offers. God's not going to force himself on us yet. But this is his promise. To anyone who believes him, to anyone who believes in him and accepts him, he gives the right to become children of God. How awesome is that? That's what he offers. That's what he promises. That's what we believe. So we're Jesus followers now. More than that, we are God's children now. Now, what's next? So what? For some Jesus followers, not much. I'm saved now, right? I've got my insurance policy for heaven. I might have to do a little bit of church. I might have to clean up my act a little tiny bit. But unfortunately for a lot of Jesus followers, being a child of God doesn't make that big a difference in this world. 
they're kind of thinking, well, maybe if there really is life after death, I've got my insurance on it now, right? And guys who study this stuff, they actually tell us that there is so little difference between the way the average Jesus follower lives and the rest of the people who are not Jesus followers. We have the same dreams, we watch the same TV, the same movies, we use the same language, maybe just a little bit cleaner. We've got the same bad habits, we've got the same good habits, but they'll tell you that being a Jesus follower doesn't really make that big a difference, except maybe a little church. Now, for other Jesus followers, following Jesus makes an oppressive difference. It does make a difference, but it's an oppressive one because now there are all these rules that I have to follow, right? Things that I can't do anymore, things that I have to do now that I'm a Jesus follower. Daggone it. Maybe someday it'll be worth it. You know, after all, putting up with these annoyances now will be worth it if there really is a heaven, right? It's always been that way. People of God, God followers, have often thought that it's all about the rules. The rules certainly defined life with God in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, right? In fact, a lot of people try to read the Bible and they start with the book of Genesis. It's book one, logical place to start, right? And the reading in Genesis isn't too bad. There's some cool stories, They move on to Exodus, and the first half of Exodus isn't too bad, some more pretty cool stories, and then it starts slogging down, right, because you start running into all these rules, all these laws. And if you bust your way through Exodus, you make it all the way to Leviticus, the Bible-reading killer. Leviticus, rule after rule after rule. No BLTs. Can't wear clothes that have a fabric blend. If a woman is on her period, you can't sit in her chair. You can't plant beans in with your corn. Really? Do you know the rabbis, they actually went through all of the Old Testament and counted the rules. They came up with 613 rules, 248 do's, and 365 don'ts. And if you're going to be a God follower, you have to do the do's and don't the don'ts, right? To pick up one of these little cards at the worship station, look at the side with the tiny print. Believe it or not, there are words there, right? That's all 613 laws in the Old Testament. I gave this to my granddaughter last week, and she turned it over, and she actually started reading it. That's ridiculous, right? I can read it too, because I've got a magnifier with a light on my phone, right? 365 don'ts, 248 do's. You must acknowledge one God, that's a do. You mustn't profane his name, that's a don't. I'm not going to go through all of them. You've got to love other God followers. You can't gossip, you can't hold a, a grudge, you can't shave your sideburns. Men must not wear women's clothing. Women must not wear men's clothing. No tattoos, no cheating on your wife, no marrying a pagan, and about 602 more. It's a lot of work. It really is. A lot of work just to remember, just to read the rules and then to follow them all. But here was their thinking. If you did the do's and you didn't do the don'ts, you're good with God. It's all about keeping score and hoping you score high enough that you pass. And you're really, really hoping that God is an easy grader, right? Or you're really, really hoping that he's grading on a curve. Because if he's strict... You're hosed. So am I. 
And even though we Jesus followers are no longer bound by these 613 Old Covenant laws, many of us think that this is still what doing life with God is all about. We think this is the heart of it. It's about doing the do's and don'ting the don'ts, right? Learning the rules, trying to follow the rules, keeping God happy, because God is scary. And I don't want to tick God off. So the question that defines life with God for so many Jesus followers is this one. Is it a sin? Is it a sin if I? Is it a sin too? I mean, what a terrible question to define your life with God. I know sin offends God. So I don't want to sin. Well, actually, I kind of do want to sin sometimes, but I hate that part of me because I'm nervous how God's going to respond. Sometimes it's kind of murky. When does something actually cross the line and become a sin? What can I get away with without crossing that line? How close can I get to sin without actually doing it? After all, I don't want to miss out on anything, right? Just because I'm a Jesus follower. If there's a loophole, I want to take advantage of it, right? Maybe if I do sin, God's going to forgive me afterwards, and that's a loophole, I guess. And life with God, for so many of us, is defined by sin avoidance. Sin avoidance. I learn the rules, follow the rules. As long as I don't do too many of the don'ts, and I do do most of the do's, I should be okay with God. Be honest. Does that ring true with any of you? Is there a piece of that that rings true for any of you? And the deal is, this whole approach to God following is pretty much vertical, right? It's about me and God. It's about making sure that I'm keeping God happy with me. It's way more about how my do's and don'ts float with God than how my do's and don'ts float with you. Pleasing God is way more important to me than pleasing you. In fact, if I sin against you, I can ask God forgiveness and I can be good with God even though it's not good between you and me, right? And I'm good with that. And there's some truth to it. There are things that I do and some things I don't that offend God. There are things that drive a wedge between me and God and that mortifies me. But sometimes it feels like it's a whole lot easier to get right with God than it is to get right with you, right? And then Jesus comes along and he says, the vertical isn't enough. Won't cut it. Being a Jesus follower isn't just about you and God. It's way, way bigger than that. Sometimes Jesus says things, sometimes Jesus does things, we miss how weird and how radical they are. We read these two verses and we think, okay, it's hard, but we get it. They heard Jesus say these two verses and they thought he's crazy. It's insane. It's not possible. Matthew 5, 23, 24. It's in the famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar and suddenly you remember that someone has something against you, I want you to leave your sacrifice at the altar. I want you to leave it there and then go and be reconciled to that person and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. And we read that and we think, well, it's hard, but it's doable. 
We think something like, well, maybe you're about to take the Lord's Supper and God convicts you of a feud that you're having with somebody, so go make it right, which might mean walking across the room or maybe sending an email or a text or making a phone call. It's hard, but doable. But when Jesus said these words, they didn't have iPhones, no texts, emails, phone calls. And back then, they weren't in the individual churches. The only place you could offer a sacrifice back then was in the temple in Jerusalem. And most of the people who were there lived a long ways from Jerusalem. No cars, no planes. So they'd try to go to Jerusalem maybe once or twice a year. And now they're standing there in the temple in line. It's hot, smelly. The animal they're about to sacrifice is getting kind of squirrely. Most of them are days or weeks or more from home. And Jesus says, okay, you're standing in line, you're getting ready to present your sacrifice at the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, and you suddenly remember that your brother or your sister, your brother up in Galilee, your sister way up in Antioch, your friend halfway across the world in Rome has something against you. I want you to get out of line. Get out of line and go and try to make things right with them first and then come back. And make things right with God. Huh? Really? Not only is that absurdly impractical, it is almost blasphemous. Since when is getting right with a brother on par with getting right with God? We're talking about the Almighty God, right? And you're telling me that reconciliation with a brother or a sister is as important, as important as reconciliation with my God? Are you telling me that the horizontal is as important to a God follower as the vertical? Are you even saying they're linked? 17 chapters later, that's the way we number them now. They actually numbered the chapters way after they were written. But 17 chapters later, Jesus blows their minds again. This one is dazzlingly weird. It's almost blasphemy, it feels like. One time these guys who hate Jesus, they think he's dangerous, they're trying to trap him, they're trying to get him to say something that they're going to use against him. So one of their lawyers asks Jesus, what is the single most important rule in all of the Old Covenant? What's the single most important command in the law of Moses? And guys, every good Jew knew the right answer. They all knew the answer. In fact, the right answer was a centerpiece of the Shema, the prayer that they prayed twice a day, every morning and every evening. There's just one God, and you have to love that one God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. Everybody knew that. That's the big one. And I suspect this lawyer who's trying to trap Jesus had his zinger ready. And why don't you, Jesus? After all, everyone knows that loving God is all about following the rules, right? It's knowing the rules. Doing the do's and don'ting the don'ts. That's what following Jesus is all about. And Jesus keeps bending the rules. He keeps changing the rules. And if he's bending and changing the rules, then he's not loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? He's a fraud, this lawyer thought. But before he can spring his trap, Jesus keeps going. Jesus says a second is like it. A second is equally important. What do you mean a second is equally important? What could possibly be as important as loving God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind? 
We're talking about loving God here, right? The creator, the almighty, the holy one. And Jesus says a second one is equally important. Jesus says you must love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And they'd heard that before. It's one of the 613. It's in Leviticus. But no one had ever pulled that out and laid it alongside loving God like Jesus did. And then Jesus says something that's weird. He says, the whole law, all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. In other words, your whole Bible, your whole contract with God, your whole covenant with God can be summed up, can be lived out in these two commands. Now, that's not how they'd have seen it. If you'd have asked a God follower back then what was the most important command in the law, he'd answer, love God. Love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. And how do you love God, right? How do you love God? You love God by following the rules. You do the do's and you don't do the don'ts. And Jesus comes along and says, maybe loving God and loving your neighbor are connected. Maybe you can't really do one without doing the other. Maybe if you're really not loving God, you're not loving your neighbor. Maybe if you're not loving your neighbor, you're not really loving God. Maybe the horizontal and the vertical are inextricably linked. Maybe you can't claim one if you're not trying the other. He's blowing their minds. He's blowing up their whole system of doing life with God. You see, he was talking to some guys who were pretty good at one of those commands and not very good at the other one. A lot of these lawyers, these scribes and Pharisees were meticulous about following the rules to the letter. And they despised and they judged and they dissed their neighbors who didn't. Kind of like some Christians. And perhaps there were a few others who figured, as long as I'm good with my neighbors, as long as I'm good with people, kind to people, I don't have to give that much attention to God, right? There's a whole lot of those people around today. Well, over in Luke's story of Jesus, the lawyer wasn't done yet. He knew his Bible. He'd read the book of Leviticus. He knew this law. He had it down. This is what the law actually said. The rule that Jesus quoted was this. It says, don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor. Here? Love your neighbor as yourself. Looks to me like there's some loopholes. I don't have to love somebody who's not an Israelite. And there are some so-called Israelites who are so messed up that they're not really my brothers at all, Right? So in reality, loving my neighbor can mean loving my people, loving people like me, loving people I like. And that's not too hard most of the time. But if they're not my people, they're not like me, and they're not people that I like, then the rule doesn't have to apply. That's my loophole, right? So the lawyer asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor, right? Tell me exactly who I have to love so I can get me some eternal life. What is the minimum requirement of this God following? 
And Jesus answers him by telling one of the most important, one of the most memorable stories ever told. In fact, even if you're not a Jesus follower, you probably know the gist of this story, the Good Samaritan, right? Jewish man is traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's attacked by bandits. They strip him of his clothes. They beat him up, leave him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest comes along, a man of God, a holy man. When he sees the man lying there, he crosses the other side of the road and passes him by. Then a temple assistant, another holy man, not quite as holy, but he walks over, looks at the poor guy lying there and passes by on the other side. Now, it's possible that these two God followers were following the rules. According to the rules, you can't touch a guy if you might be dead, especially if you're going to the temple because it would defile you and you can't work in the temple after that, make you unclean. Beside, are you sure he's your neighbor? You don't have to help everybody, just people like you and people you like. And so as Jesus is telling the story, everybody's leaning in. And Jesus says, a despised Samaritan came along. A despised Samaritan came along. <laughs> guys, these guys hated each other, these Jews and these Samaritans. Not like Kentucky fans hate Duke fans. Way beyond that. Not even like Republicans and Democrats hate each other today. This is a Hatfield and McCoy kind of hate. This is a I hope you rot in hell kind of hate. No way, Jesus, don't you dare. No Jew would rescue a Samaritan. No Samaritan would rescue a Jew. Let him bleed, let him die, let him rot. Jesus says, a despised Samaritan came along when he saw the man. He felt compassion for him. Really? Come on. Get real. It's a stupid story. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the guy on his own donkey. His own donkey, Really? takes him to an inn, takes care of him. The next day he hands the innkeeper <clears throat> two silver coins. He says, take care of this guy. If he, if he runs up a higher bill, I'll take care of it when I come back. Come on, Jesus. And then Jesus, this is, this is where Jesus changes the rules. Then Jesus says, which of these three was the neighbor? And with that story and with that question, he redefines neighbor forever. My neighbor is just not only one of my people, not just someone who's like me, not just someone I like. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor in the way that I define him, Jesus says. As you love yourself. Because these two, Jesus says, are enough. And they pretty much define what it is like to do life with God in our new covenant with God now. Everything else in the New Testament is pretty much commentary. The two are co-equal, Jesus says. In fact, you really can't do one without doing the other. You can't love God if you're not loving your neighbor. And you can't love your neighbor if they don't see you loving God. And there was this stunned silence. This is new. This is simpler. This is bigger. Listen, guys, the heart of following Jesus is not about the rules. It's not about figuring out the do's and the don'ts and doing the do's and don'ting the don'ts. It's not about sin avoidance. It's about loving God with all you've got and loving each other 
And then he tells us how. One last incredible, mind-blowing, paradigm-shifting piece. We call it the Last Supper. That evening, later, Jesus is going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's going to let them arrest him and mock him and beat him. The next day, he's going to let them kill him, crucify him, after which he planned on staying dead for a couple of days, right? Disciples know something is coming. Tension's thick. It's Passover. It's the most sacred of their meals. Jesus kicks it off by washing the feet of his disciples, which horrified them. No master should ever wash the feet of his disciples, but Jesus did whatever he wanted. He was good at bending the rules. Then Jesus walks them through the Passover liturgy, probably the same liturgy, the same story that they had celebrated every year since birth. They know how it's supposed to go. Except this time with Jesus, he blew their minds. It almost feels like blasphemy to them. From that day forward, Jesus says, this meal, this meal, will not be about Moses and the Exodus and the law. That covenant is done. From now on, there's going to be a new covenant with God that centers around Jesus, he said. The new covenant written by his blood. That meal that night was either going to be the holiest moment any of them had ever experienced or the most blasphemous, depending on whether Jesus was right or wrong. And then Jesus says this. It's kind of the end of the trail that he'd been leading them on for the last couple of years. He says, I'm going to give you one more rule, one new one, new command, new law. And those of them who didn't get it yet probably groaned a little. Come on, Jesus, we've already got 613 of them. We don't need another. 613 enough? Jesus, come on, guys, don't you get it? I've already narrowed it to two. You know, the two that sum up the rest, love God with all you've got and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. I'm going to give you one more to clarify exactly the kind of love that I'm talking about. Just as I have loved you, with the same kind of love that I have loved you, the way that I love you, not your kind of wussy love, my kind of love, that's how you're going to love each other. It's mind-blowing in two ways. First, because Jesus is making love a verb. This kind of love is not something you have or you don't. It's something you do. It's not something you fall into or you fall out of. It's something you do. It's not something you feel. It's It's not something someone deserves or someone earns. It's something you do. Jesus has taken love to a whole new level. And then he says, I want you to do it like I do. As I have loved you. In the same way, with the same kind of love that I've loved every one of you. I want you to love each other my way. The next day, he dies for them. So, we're Jesus followers, right? More than that, we're God's kids. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, you're God's kids. So now what? You come up out of that water. What's next? Boils down to this. Still have your card? Don't look at the side that's got all the little tiny words. Look at this side. Love God, love others. 
He tells us how to do life with God his way. Love God, love others. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And love others the way that Jesus loves them. And here's the deal, guys. This is it. You can't do either one without doing the other. Maybe you're doing great. Maybe these two commands already define your life with God. That is so cool. Most of us struggle with one or the other. Some of you guys struggle with loving God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. You love people pretty well, you think, but you kind of blow off God. Listen, please listen. You cannot really love people the way they need to be loved without loving God first. Dads, moms, you're not loving your kids to the fullest if you're not pointing them towards God. You believe that? At work, you're not loving your colleagues and your friends unless they see you loving your God. Guys, if there really is a God, and if Jesus really is the Son of God, and if Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, how can we really love anybody if we're not pointing them towards God? Are you loving God with all you've got? Do they know? Do the people you love know that you love Him? Others of us, others of you guys struggle with loving people. You think you're pretty tight with God, but there's some people that you just assume are out in hell. You're not loving God if you're not trying to love those people that God loves. I know it's hard, nothing harder. The Apostle John put it like this. He says, dear friends, let us continue to love one another because love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love doesn't know God because God is love. That is hard. And it's God's truth. And there are some who struggle with both. You struggle with loving God, you struggle with loving each other. And you are missing, you're missing the life that God meant you to live. You're missing real life. Life with God, God's way. The cool thing is, He loves you anyway. So much. And he's already done everything that is necessary to, to forgive you and make you his child. And he's tugging on you. I suspect you feel him tugging on you. Don't push him away. Guys, every service, we've got some elder in the prayer room over there, and he's praying for you guys. If you want to talk to him, if you want to pray with him, slip into the back at some point in this next little part of the service and just have a prayer. When I'm done, I'm going to sit right down here, and I'd love to chat with you. I'd love to pray with you if you need to. He's tugging on you guys. It's not enough that he died for your sins. You've got to accept it, and then we do life with him. So just come up in this next little bit. Let's talk. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, you gave us instructions that are so, so all-encompassing, so amazing, and yet, in other ways, so liberating. They make life, life come alive. Give us the wisdom, the courage to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, 
Give us the courage to love each other as you have loved us. Help us to taste the life that you meant us to live. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, guys, we're not quite done. Next week, I'm going to be spending some time talking about just doing life with God, spending time with God. A lot of Jesus followers, their life with God is like a bad marriage. Two people who live in the same house, but they never really talk. They never really do life together. It's not the way God meant it. Then in two weeks, we're going to talk about another facet of our life with God, engaging God together. God did not make us to go it alone. When you accept Christ as your father, God as your father, you gain a family, and we need each other. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. But for right now, we're going to sing this incredible song together. And I just encourage you not just to watch the words or listen to the music, but actually think about what we're going to say and make it your own. Let's stand and sing to our God together.